master. So sorry about that. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. If you could turn with me to Genesis 17. That's a pity because that last verse is really good. Don't mind. Um, before we start, can I say one thing I forgot to announce earlier was that uh, uh, it's been about a year now since uh, Sarah Sunteri uh, passed away. You may, some of you know her. She was part of our part of our congregation. Um, so I thought let's just spend a moment just to just to remember her and uh, uh, feeding the needy this week and next week. I think has been uh, uh, been uh, donated in memory of her. Okay, so for those of you who remember uh, Sarah, let's just take a moment. Father, we, uh, we thank you for Sarah and we thank you for uh, the time that she had with us. And we thank you um, for the friendship and the relationships that uh, um, we've been able to share with her in that time. And our Father, we, we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the promises that we have in him. We thank you that um, those promises to Abraham of a, of a place has been fulfilled in Christ. And we look forward to uh, the day when all your people will be gathered around your throne. And Father, we pray now that as we uh, look at your word together, as we consider um, how you related and dealt with your servant Abraham of old, we pray that uh, you help us to see how we relate to you now and we pray that you help us to, to move forward in that we pray in Jesus name Amen have you been circumcised there's a question for you I'm not going to ask the men in our congregation to put their hands up it might be a little bit embarrassing but I do want you to think about the question have you been circumcised People nowadays get circumcised for all kinds of reasons, don't they? Some people get circumcised for religious reasons. Jews circumcise their baby boys. Muslims circumcise their boys when they reach adolescence. Some people are circumcised for cultural reasons. Apparently 75% of men in the United States are circumcised. Isn't that interesting? Not because they're mostly Jews or Muslims, but somehow or other that's got to their culture. Stops dramatically when you cross the border into Canada. Sometimes people are circumcised for medical reasons. So all kinds of medical, well not all kinds, there's a few medical disorders for which circumcision is a treatment. Have you been circumcised? In our passage today, God commands Abram to be circumcised. Not only Abram, but his whole household and all his descendants. So look at the episode together. It's been 13 years since the happenings that we looked at last week. When in that instant last week, Abram had a son by Hagar, his wife's slave girl, and the boy's name was Ishmael. But God had promised him many descendants through his wife, Sarai. And so far, he, he had not delivered. Sarai was... Well and truly past the age of having children. And as far as we know, God had not spoken to Abram at all in those 13 years. So it was just 13 years of waiting and hoping and trusting that maybe God would keep his promise. 
We know it's 13 years because in the final verse of chapter 16, Abram's 86 years old. And in verse 1 of chapter 17, he's 99. So that's simple arithmetic. But here at the age of 99, God appears to Abram again. Let's read together from verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now hang on a tick, you think. Didn't we have a covenant already? Back in chapter 15? You know, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passing between cut up animals. Why another covenant? Well, if we go back to chapter 15, the formalities in that covenant were all about Abram's descendants possessing the promised land. But this covenant concentrates on the people themselves. That is, God's been promising things about Abram's descendants. In, in Genesis 12, we get the whole thing, don't we? You've got land, you've got many descendants, you've got the blessing. Those are promises. And these are sealed in a covenant in Genesis 15 that especially looks at the, uh, uh, looks at the land side of things. It's formalized there. And then here in chapter 17, the, the people side is formalized more. Remember in, in 15, first half of 15, we talked about the, the people, when Abraham, God took Abraham outside, showed him the sky and said, look, that's as many as your descendants will be. And Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous as a result. But remember in 15, the formal covenant wasn't about that, it was the second half, wasn't it? It's about the, uh, it was about the land. And he says the formal covenant about the descendants to this point. And interestingly, he starts off with a command. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Again, that's a bit confusing. Because so far, the promises have been unconditional. Covenant Genesis 15 was unconditional. Only God walked between the animals. The obligations were all on God's side. But here, God says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant with you. Is this a change from grace as a basis for the covenant to works? And how can God, how can Abram walk blamelessly before God? I mean, we already know from his behavior in the last few chapters that he's far from being a perfect man. Well, in one sense, it's only possible because he was first justified by faith wasn't he? He was declared right with God, not because of anything he did, but because he believed God's promises, all the way back in chapter 15. And so when God tells him to walk blamelessly before him, not, he's not telling him to do something in order to get the promises. He's already declared him not guilty. He's already declared him right. He's already declared him justified. But now he's telling him how she should act now that he has been justified. Now that he has been declared righteous, now that he has been given the promises, he's got to walk blamelessly before God. And, well, that's just like us, isn't it, really? We've been given the promises of God. We trust him. We've been declared right with God. We've been justified. God says, not guilty because of faith. And then God says, walk before me and be blameless. Live your life, every step, knowing that you're doing so in front of me. Every word, every thought, every action, do it for show, and I am the audience.
Live your life in front of me and be blameless. Do things, do only things, think only things, say only things that, that I'll be pleased with. Worship me with your life. But there is still a little bit more to it here. God says, walk before me in blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. There's somehow or other this, this making of the covenant, the formalization of the promises seems to depend on Abram's blamelessness. But then what happens? Well, in verse 3, Abram fell on his face. He worshipped God. Maybe he realizes how small, how unworthy he is before God. And then God goes straight ahead and makes the covenant promises. He doesn't wait to see if Abram really is blameless. He just gives him the covenant promises. He says, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You see, you've got both land and people here, but notice what I said before. The emphasis is really on the people side. Many descendants, over and over again. Now we know the promises that Abram would have many descendants. Well, that's not entirely new, is it? I've had it already lots of times. But there are more details here that we didn't have before. In verse 4, Abram is the father of many nations. Previously in Genesis 12, we only heard of one. Also goes with a change of name. Abram just means something like exalted father. God changes it to Abraham, which means something like father of a multitude. Like the multitude in verse 5 referring to a multitude of nations. Not only that, we have a promise of kingship. God tells Abraham, the end of verse 6, that kings will come from him. And then in verse 7, God talks about covenant again. He's made an everlasting covenant with Abraham's descendants. He will bring Abraham's God, he will give them the land to his descendants, and he will be their God as well. But what about on their side? What do they need to do? How do they make and how do they keep the covenant? And how do Abram's descendants walk blamelessly before God? Well, verse 9 and 10. God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout generations, and this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here it is, verse 10. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's how they keep the covenant, by being circumcised. It's a bit puzzling too, isn't it? Because of the human side of the covenant is on one hand to be blameless, and yet somehow or other it's linked to being circumcised. As if they were related, but we're not told how. And then God continues in verse 11. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money surely shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Well, that's pretty strict, isn't it? That's very, very serious. If you want to be in the covenant, you have to be circumcised. No circumcision, no covenant. No covenant, no promises. God made promises to Abram and his offspring. But in order to access those promises, they needed to be circumcised. God would be their God, and they would be his circumcised people. And God says this is an eternal covenant. Now, for the Israelites, in a sense, circumcision is not really a work, is it? It's not not as if by, by being circumcised, Abram could make himself have more descendants. Abram had believed God when he promised him descendants in Genesis 15 and God had counted him righteous. And so, like walking blamelessly, circumcision was meant to be a response of faith to God's promises. It was saying, yes, I believe the promises of God, I trust the promises of God, and I'm willing to be counted as one of his people. And so in Romans chapter 4 verse 11, uh, which we've read earlier, Paul's talking about circumcision, he's talking about Abram, he says, Abram received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Say it again. Abram was counted righteous in God's eyes when he believed. Years and years later, God gave him this sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness he had by faith when he believed. It was the mark on Abram for God to say, this man has a righteousness based on faith. And because of that, I've made a covenant with him. And a covenant is not only with him, but all his descendants after him. Everyone for whom he is responsible will bear this sign. They too will have the mark of the covenant. They too will belong to me. They refuse, they'll be cut off, they won't be part of this. They won't be part of my people, and I won't be their God. So God made this covenant of circumcision with Abram and all his descendants as an everlasting covenant for all time. Then, God gives Abram more details about his plans for giving him descendants. He didn't say anything when chapter 16, when he had Ishmael. But now, he tells Abraham his intentions. And just like he changed Abram's name, he changes Sarai's name as well. Verse 15. God said to Abram, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. God's changed name, hasn't changed plan. And there's a reason she's called princess. Well, it's evident in verse 16. I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations and kings of people shall come from her. Well, God's plan was for Abram's descendants of promise to come from Sarah. Many nations, many kings. 
But Abram knows Sarah. He knows how old she is. That's a bit hard to believe. So in verse 17, Abram fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? See, he lost the thought of his ninety-year-old wife having a baby. It's a little bit funny. <laughs> Isn't it? It's just preposterous. Have a little quiet smile, a little chuckle. He's not being rude. Remember, he fell on his face in worship before God. He's fallen on his face. It looks like he's worshiping God, so his little, little laugh is hidden. And, and when he recovers, he, he tries to make it easier for God. In verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Why go to all the trouble, Lord? I've already got an heir. Ishmael. Let him inherit the promises. But God's always had the other plans. Verse 19, No! But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Which means he laughs. Abraham thought he'd hidden it, but God knew what he was doing. And then God continues. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God is determined to keep his original promise. Ishmael's got his own promises, but the covenant with Abram, the promise of land, people, blessing, and blessing for the whole world, that will come through Isaac. Son of promise, will be conceived by a miracle, and Abram would have to trust God to give him. No, no, no shortcuts there. Incidentally, just in case you thought that this conversation was all going on in Abram's head, verse 22 tells us what happened at the end of it. When he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Okay, this is a real encounter. It wasn't just a feeling that Abram had or a voice in his head that he couldn't tell if it was God or not. Later on, when God spoke to the prophet Samuel, he spoke with an audible voice that was so confused, he he thought Eli was calling him. But here, when God spoke to Abram, it was even more bigger than that. God met with him, had a conversation with him, and then went up. It's a real conversation you might have with with each other or with me. So what did Abram do with this command? Was it too painful to contemplate? Would he take the pains to convince all his males in his household to, to do it as well? What's he going to do? Well, Abram obeyed the voice of God. Verse 24 to 27. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Whole household, everyone, circumcised. Obedience to God's command. Their half of the bargain, their part of the covenant. So, what about us? At least the guys. Are we 
not spiritual descendants of Abraham? Are we not all heirs to Abraham's promise? Of course we are. If we are children of Abraham, if we are heirs to these promises, if we have been justified by faith, should we not receive the sign of circumcision like Abraham? Which is, after all, the sign of the righteousness that comes by faith, as Romans said. Should we not have the mark to say that we belong to God? And that He is our God and that we are His covenant people? Well, surely the answer must be yes. We are God's people. We are children of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. We are part of the people of promise. We have received the promises of Abraham. We are part of the covenant with Abraham. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham's God is our God. We are part of that everlasting covenant. Like Abraham, we ought to be circumcised. No matter how painful, how unpopular, no matter what our previous traditions say, if the Bible says we should be circumcised, then, then we must be circumcised. That's it. But then, on the other hand, look at some verses from the New Testament about circumcision. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Ah, okay. Oh, what about Galatians chapter 6? But far be it from me, verse 14, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So the New Testament tells us not to get circumcised, and says actually it doesn't really, it's of no value. Spiritually nothing, you know? nothing more significant than a scar in my leg from when I fell down as a kid. Under some circumstances, although under other circumstances it could be positively dangerous. Remember in the New Testament times there were some people who were saying that, that faith in Christ is not good enough for salvation and yet insist that you also be circumcised as well in order to be saved. And under those circumstances Paul says this in Galatians 5.2 Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Wow. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. Wasn't circumcision God's idea? Wasn't it God's plan? God's command and everlasting covenant? And yet it's discouraged and in some circumstances even forbidden in the New Testament. What's going on? Yes or no? Friends, remember The Old Testament deals with signs. The New Testament deals with realities. The Old Testament sets up the physical models. 
The New Testament is about the spiritual realities to which those models point. Old Testament deals with shadows. New Testament deals with a solid spiritual reality. The Old Testament is about promise. New Testament is about fulfillment. Circumcision. The physical cutting of the foreskin. That is part of the model. What we are really meant to have as New Testament Christians is not the model, but the reality. So then we're going to ask, what does circumcision as a model point forward to? What does the rite of circumcision foreshadow? What happens to us and in us, in reality, that fulfills the command that everyone must be circumcised in the model? Well, the Old Testament itself hints at the answer. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel before they go to the promised land. Just before they enter. They're on the edge. He's already spoken about the blessings they'll enjoy in the land if they obey God. And the curses they'll come under if they disobey him. And he knew they'll disobey him. He knew they'd come under the curses and they'll get expelled from the land. And after that, after that, if they turn back to God, God would do something miraculous for them. Just pointing forward to the New Testament times. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see, the real circumcision, the circumcision that really counts, the circumcision that really makes you one of God's people is circumcision of the heart. That's not really about the foreskin. That was the point. The real circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. The prophet Ezekiel puts the same thing in a different way. In Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And what does that mean? It means I will put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to keep my rules. You see, the real circumcision, the New Testament reality, to which the Old Testament circumcision pointed forward to, is circumcision of the heart, or another way of putting it, the giving of the Spirit. Now, some people think the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament circumcision is baptism. And I can see why you think that. Right? Baptism is the outward sign of the new life we have in Christ. It's the, an initiation rite like, like, like circumcision, but, but that's actually where the New Testament takes it. In fact, if baptism was just a substitute for circumcision, then Paul wouldn't have to argue so much with the Judaizers and Galatians. All he'd have to say is, no, you don't need to get circumcised because you've been baptized instead. Easy. But it's not the case. Circumcision was the sign of belonging to the covenant. It was the seal of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, think New Testament. What in the New Testament is the seal of the righteousness that comes by faith? 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Or Ephesians 4 verse 30. Do not grieve this Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see? In the Old Testament, circumcision was your seal of being in the covenant. It was the mark on your body that says, this person belongs to God. If you're not circumcised, you're not in. And the New Testament, this circumcision is not a physical one, it's a circumcision of the heart, or to put it another way, the giving of the Spirit. And the Spirit is God's mark on our hearts that says, this person belongs to God. That is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, that is with a pre-circumcised shaped heart, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, just like circumcision in the Old Testament. If you don't have it, you don't belong. The seal of the Spirit in the New Testament is the fulfillment of the seal of circumcision in the Old Testament. That's the real circumcision. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. Well, that's, that's one side of the coin anyway. There's another side of that coin. See, circumcision hasn't just happened in us, but even more primarily, it's happened for us. Let me explain. Nowadays, you sign a treaty, or you sign an agreement. Back in those days, you didn't sign, you cut. You cut a covenant. That's, that's how you talk about it. All right? Now, people didn't always do it literally. Sometimes they did. Remember how in Genesis 15, God made the covenant with Abraham, and he and cut the animals in half and God walked between them there was a cutting here in Genesis 17 God makes a second covenant with Abram and there's also a cutting it's Abram's foreskin that's the cut of the covenant made it official now where is the cut in our new covenant look at me Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 in Christ as in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Right, that's the circumcision of the heart that we talked about earlier. But that is linked to something else. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. There's this circumcision of Christ which is linked to this putting off of the body of flesh. Now what's this putting off of the body of flesh? Previous chapter in Colossians 1, uh, we've already talked about, Paul's already mentioned this body of flesh. When he says, God has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, it was Christ's physical body. His body in which he died for our sins. So the putting off of the body of flesh in Colossians 2 verse 11, uh, if we keep, sorry, can we do go to verse 11, is, is that putting off of Christ's physical body. The circumcision of Christ, that is, that is the same thing. That is, he's putting off, Christ can cut off, not just his foreskin, but his whole body. In other words, Christ's circumcision is his death. And so the cross is the ultimate fulfillment of that, of that shadow of circumcision. The cutting off of the Israelite foreskin points to the, the cutting off of Christ's physical body. So circumcision points forward to Christ and his death. And that is also why it is absolutely necessary for the Israelites to have that sign on their body. Circumcision was covenant with Abraham. The cutting that brought it into effect. 
They would not have that sign, that cut on their bodies. They would not be one of God's people. And the cross is the reality that brings it into effect for us. It's the cut that brings the, the new covenant into effect. And if we will not have Christ crucified in our hearts, then we will not be one of God's people. And so in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh. By circumcision of Christ. That is, you've been given a new heart by the Spirit. And that's made possible by the circumcision of Christ. That is, his death. By faith in Christ, you've been united with Christ in his circumcision. You've been joined with him in his death. And so we see the two aspects of our circumcision. Two sides of the coin. On the one side, circumcision for us. What Christ has done on the cross. We're united with Jesus in his death. Jesus was, now think about it, Jesus was the truly blameless one. He was the one whose life was, the only one whose life was really perfectly lived before God. The only one who really was worthy of the covenant. That he was the one who died for our sins. And in his death, he's the one who truly cut the covenant. The real covenant. And he took our sins and gave us his righteousness so that we could be counted righteous as well. And on the other side of that circumcision coin is the fact that we've been given new hearts by the Spirit. The circumcision in us. Holy Spirit gives us new hearts. Hearts that that truly love God and that really do want to please him. Hearts that do want to live blamelessly before him. Hearts that the Spirit is leading to godly living. See, the Spirit leads us to holiness. The Spirit teaches us to walk blamelessly before God. Well, we still have the old flesh hanging around. still a struggle. But God, by His Spirit, is working in us. And so we are being changed. And so, brothers and sisters, true circumcision happened for us on the cross when Jesus died and happens in us, in our hearts, when God gives us His Spirit. Those who trust in Jesus, those who have been given a new birth by the Spirit, they are the ones who are truly circumcised. Not the ones whose forked skins have been cut with a knife. And so the Apostle Paul declares in Philippians 3 verse 3, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, it's not about the flesh anymore. That is a circumcision that the cutting of the Israelite was meant to point forward to. And if we have been circumcised in that way, we really have been circumcised in the covenant. And we really are part of the people of God, the people descended spiritually from Abraham. So let me ask you again that question I asked you at the beginning of this talk. Have you been circumcised? Were you part of that big circumcision, the the putting off of the physical body of Jesus? Have you been united with him spiritually in his death? You trust in him for your forgiveness and eternal life. And have you been given the Holy Spirit to circumcise your heart? Do you trust Jesus and love him and therefore seek to live blamelessly before him? 
Do you seek to worship Him with all your life and live your life before Him? Is the Spirit leading you to become more and more like Jesus in your character? Have you really been circumcised on the inside? If you are a believer, the answer must be yes. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Christ, having forgiven us our transgressions, cancelling the record of death that stood against us, with its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Have you experienced the true circumcision. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your promises and your faithfulness to your promises. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way that everything that in the Old Testament you have fulfilled in Jesus. And now you, you, you bring us to those spiritual realities to which those uh, physical Signs were were but pictures. Father, we thank you that Jesus has died for us. That he was circumcised, not just in his foreskin, but his whole body cut off for us. We thank you that by faith we we can be part of that. Be united with him in his death. Forgiven of all our sins and given his righteousness. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us new hearts, who circumcises us on the inside in our hearts, that we may truly love you and to walk before you. Help us, Father, to listen to your Spirit when he leads us to godliness, as he seeks to teach us and to change us and to bring us to living a blameless life before you. Help us to be obedient. And Father, we pray that we would always appreciate the circumcision we have in Christ and never try to add other things to that. Keep us, we pray, and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.